All right, if you have a Bible or a phone or whatever, open to Mark chapter 3. We're going to finish up the third chapter of Mark here this morning. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, where we read this. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Morning. We will be wrapping up Mark chapter 3. We find here that Jesus has quite a following everywhere he went. There's a large crowd there. But before we jump into this passage, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us the things you desire us to understand and for us to enact in our life. I pray, God, that this is more than just the information that we're getting, that this is more than just a conviction that we feel but that this does indeed play out in our life and how we live it. In Jesus' name, amen. We know that we don't get this type of crowd without gathering a significant amount of influence or a significant amount of impact. And if what Jesus preached and taught was an insignificant thing, if what he had done had no impact, there wouldn't be such a mass of people who were following him around. Now, we often gone back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15, because this is, in summary, what he was preaching and what he was teaching, and it reads this. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what he was essentially doing was a work of restoration, reconciling humankind to God, as evidenced in Jesus' baptism, in his eating with tax collectors and sinners, Freeing people from oppressors like his disciples, the fishermen and the tax collectors could now live as brothers. That people who were under the oppressive thumb of the Pharisees saw freedom in how Jesus dealt with them in matters of fasting and Sabbath, like healing the man with the withered hand. He connected the ostracized to community, the the demon-possessed, the leper, the paralytic, the tax collector, Simon's mother-in-law. And so with all these wonderful things happening, one would think that Jesus' family and that the people of the religious establishment would be really proud of what he was saying, of what he was doing, but not so according to Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then he went home, 
And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Many of you probably have heard this from your own families, right? You're out of your mind. I've definitely heard it from mine. But mine were right. <laughs> but this isn't a phrase that you'd be expecting from a supportive family, right? This is not something you'd think that you'd hear. And it wasn't just what they said, but you look at what they did. Verse 21. They went out to seize him, to actively stop him. And I think that their intentions were probably good. I think they wanted to protect Jesus from causing more of a ruckus than he already had. And I think they were doing a bit of self-preservation of their own family, even though their family didn't have that good of a reputation because of Mary's past and having Jesus out of wedlock and all this kind of stuff that kind of followed her. So, but, you know, I think some of us may have experienced something like this. You're doing something great, and the people you think have your back, the people closest to you whom you count on for support actually don't have your back and actually don't support you. And it's not that they're mean-spirited. I think they just don't understand. And if one is to think of supportive people, oftentimes we think of family. That's kind of where we default to. Brothers are supposed to have each other's backs. And it's not so in Jesus' family. You look at what is written in John chapter 7, verse 5 about his brothers. For not even his brothers believed in him. And you look at what Jesus said in Mark chapter 6, verse 4. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. It's kind of surprising to read about Jesus' family's response to him, and it's also surprising to read of Jesus' response to his family, which we'll get to later. In his response to his family, I think it helps us to address our families and whether we have idolized our families, which some families have done. It's for sure something my wife and I have done, and it's something that we need to revisit often because we get so caught up in this family idolatry of ours. And so we'll look into a little bit of this more when we get to verse 31. Let's first get into verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Jesus has caused such a commotion that scribes are sent from Jerusalem to kind of investigate what's happening here. And so these guys are regarded as the authority when it comes to religious law, and they come to uncover this farce of authority when it came to religious law, and they came to uncover what Jesus was doing. And so these guys, they came out swinging. Because forget about the unclean leper, forget about eating with tax collectors and sinners, forget about not fasting when religious folks are, Forget about not following the law of the Sabbath and taking the grain. We're going to take it a step up. We're going to accuse him of being demon-possessed. So it's not about what he's doing anymore. It is about who he is. We're going to attack him. Again, people who you think have your back because you're serving God, so you expect the other people that are serving God to kind of be around you. And so your family and your religious community... But Jesus' family, they think he's cuckoo. And the religious community accused him of being possessed by Satan. 
Jesus set free those who were demon-possessed, and the scribes reasoned that the way Jesus was able to do such thing was by forces of darkness. Now, there was no arguing about what was happening because people all around saw Jesus deliver people from spiritual oppression, from the physical ailments that they were suffering. So they had to go another route and credit his work to evil powers, right? To the dark side. So excited when it's coming out. (laughs) And this is quite the accusation. And one that doesn't match up to what Jesus has been doing. So Jesus shares a parable to have them exercise their logic and their reasoning skills. Verse 23 through 26. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Very logical, very reasonable. If Satan wants to possess someone, he won't cast himself out of that person simultaneously. If a kingdom is in civil war, it won't stand unless they are united. If people within a family are divided, they won't remain together if they are not reconciled to each other. So Jesus then continued on with this logical argument, verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So the strong man here is Satan and his goods are not just people, but rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness spiritual forces of evil. And the one to bind him is the one who is stronger, Jesus, who is able to free us from the strong man's hold. Jesus liberates us to live in our true identity with true dignity. Jesus came to restore things to how they were intended to be. So when we question ourselves as to why we do justice, which is why we are looking at the Gospel of Mark, questioning ourselves in terms of why we do what we do at our church. We are his church. We are an extension of what Jesus does in restoring things the way they ought to be. And we have been given eyes to see and ears to hear the injustices of our world. He has liberated us to see our true identity and to see our true dignity. And from that, now we are accountable, we are responsible to do justice and to love mercy, to preach and to teach the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, and to put our action behind what we say just as Jesus did. That's why we do what we do. Oftentimes, Christians are just really preoccupied with our personal spirituality, aren't we? We're very good at that. We look at our individual spirituality. We kind of disregard the community. And so we tend to look at our own personal sins. But this is more than just your addiction. This is more than just your lying, your unforgiving heart. It includes those things because those sins contained in your person influence everything else about you. But oftentimes we get so self-absorbed by personal sins, that we forget the more systemic ones that are all around us. And this is what the scribes and the Pharisees were guilty of. Because those guys went to church. 
but they couldn't recognize an unclean spirit in a person in their own church. Those guys observed the Sabbath, but there were so many sick people who needed healing and they weren't addressing those people's needs. Those guys could fast, but they couldn't recognize this oppressive Roman government who was pitting people against one another, the tax collector against the fishermen, and taking more from the people than they ought to. Those guys could teach about the scriptures, but they lacked the power to bring harmony into the community. Jesus brought the leper back into the community. Jesus raised a paralytic to go back into community. Jesus ate with many sinners and tax collectors. And many of us, we are children of God. We are identifying ourselves as followers of Jesus. We have authority and power in Jesus' name to bind the strong man. But are we guilty, just like those scribes and those Pharisees, of not doing anything but the religious actions and nothing behind it? There are a lot of people who are bound by the strong man, but what are we doing to liberate them? Are we willing to enter into the strong man's house, which is a very scary thing to do? It is a scary thing to do. He's not the weak man. He is the strong man. Right? So this is scary. But the thing is, you are from God. We are from God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus said in Luke chapter 4 that he came to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah from Isaiah 61. He said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That is why Jesus came. That's why he came. Now, it doesn't mean that the strong man does not exist. Because we see all the injustice all over the place, all around us. We see the evil in people. We see evil in ourselves. He's still very present. He's still very strong. But his time is coming to an end because Jesus has entered the strong man's house. Just like he entered earth from heaven, he entered into baptism, identifying with all of our sinful filth. He entered the house of sinners and he ate with them. And every place he entered, he exited with you and me in mind to set us free. And so a heavy cost was paid for every place that he entered. Entering from heaven to earth, he left all that of a king to live a life of ill repute, born of a poor teenage single mother from an insignificant town into an oppressive Roman state. That's how he came. Entering into baptism, he left it to enter 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. Entering into the house of sinners, he was ridiculed and rejected by the religious authorities and his own family. Entering into the strong man's house, he paid with his life. He died on the cross. It cost him everything. And so Jesus gives this serious warning after this parable, verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. 
Who did Jesus address in these verses? It's the scribes from Jerusalem, isn't it? The religious authorities credited what Jesus did to an unclean spirit. What Jesus taught, what Jesus did was attributed to Satan. And these religious leaders willfully rejected God's grace and his desire for reconciliation, for restoration. Now there's an unforgivable blasphemy, and that is rejecting the one who can offer forgiveness. So everything is forgivable. Everything is forgivable, all when someone accepts God's provision for forgiveness of sins, namely Jesus, who takes our sins so we are seen as righteous before God. But if God's provision for the forgiveness of sins is rejected, then how can someone be forgiven? Do we follow the logic in that? Because where else can forgiveness of sins be received if not from God? So this morning, where do you stand with God? Have you accepted his grace, his desire to reconcile relationship with you, and his desire to restore things the way that they ought to be? Or are you rejecting his peace offering? God does not want to be at enmity with us. He wants harmony. He wants peace with us. And in those three verses... I think there is often a tendency for people to focus on the unforgivable sin, right? That's kind of like the verse that people look to directly. What's the one that's blasphemous, that's unforgivable? But I want to point us to the awesome verse of verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. All. Sometimes people pay so much attention to verse 29. Right? The only way your sins aren't forgiven is not wanting the way to forgiveness. But everything, all, is forgiven through Jesus. Now verse 28 is something to celebrate. It's something for us to highlight. Truly I say to you, all sins are forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, let's finish this part of the scriptures here for this morning. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Family was an extremely high value in Jesus' day. It's something that is of high value in our day. And since the beginning of humankind, family has been interwoven into this, right? Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We go into the book of Exodus and we find that one of the Ten Commandments addressed family. Right, Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And Jesus was placed in a family with parents and siblings. And even though at this point of Mark's story, his family thinks he is crazy. By the time Jesus is on the cross, he is still very mindful of his family. And he does what he can to honor his mother. 
He's dying on the cross. He is the oldest son, and he made sure that his widowed mother was taken care of. John chapter 19, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And let's not paint a false picture of Jesus' family. I mean, things were really tough in his family. They thought that he was out of his mind. Now let's take a look at part of a messianic psalm to paint a picture for us of Jesus' relationship with his family. It's Psalm 69, verses 7 through 9. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. A lot has been written on the family within the Bible. There's a lot of instruction as to how we are to live within family structures as parents, as children. And while much of the Judeo-Christian worldview, values, beliefs have shaped much of the world's views on family, What's shared in verses 31 through 35 is actually not something that's all that much shared about, right? This isn't that shared about with, like, focus on the family and stuff like that, right? They don't look at these verses all that much. There are a ton of books written about family. There are radio shows and conferences and seminars, all sorts of resources about family. But you'd probably be hard-pressed to find stuff on verses 31 through 35 when it comes to family. Jesus' mother and brothers came looking for him in verses 31 and 32, and it was probably to rescue him. All this trouble was popping up, and they probably came with these good intentions to protect him and to bring him home and, and not to bring any more trouble on his family. But what Jesus said in verse 33 is just really startling for a good Jewish boy to say to his family Who are my mother and brothers? And probably pretty hurtful to his mom, wouldn't you think? And probably quite rude to your brothers who are looking out for mom. And so these verses are something for us to look at as prioritizing family over everything around us. And for those of us who kind of hold that standard. Because I think there are a good number of us that do this. That we prioritize family over everything else. I'm guilty of this. So let's take a look at this section a little closer. First, to get the context of these last five verses, we need to go back to verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. So this is a family intervention, right? And when Jesus' family arrived at the scene, they're standing outside and they sent a messenger to him that they're looking for him. Now, if you're kind of the guy, right, at a special event or at a sporting event, a concert or any large gathering, doesn't your family get special privileges? They don't have to wait in line for their tickets, do they? They don't go to will call. They don't do any of that stuff. The person on stage makes sure that their family has access to them. Right? They get all access passes. They get to go where the food is. They get to go to the back room and hobnob with the band. Right? They get to go to the trailer and take a nap. They get to do it all. And 
if they want to get a message to their loved one, it gets delivered, and then the loved one acts on it, right? So they say, hey, um, can you get my mom some food? Um, it can't have fat, it can't have carbs, no protein, and no calories, though, okay? So go, go, go do that. But here, Jesus is sent a message that his family wants to see him, and he answered, who are my mother and my brothers? And so I just put myself in the family's place. They're probably shocked. Like, what? What? People who were passing the message along were probably also shocked. Like, did he really say that? <laughs> but you know, this isn't the first time that Mary was shocked. Remember back in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 40? And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him and among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So that was probably the first time he was rude to his mom. And so that first time, Mary was probably like, boy, you better. Go. Like, you know, probably the first time, you know. But this other time, she's probably like, yeah, yeah, all right, I got it. But, you know, some tension there between family and priorities, right? There's a lot of tension there. And so here's another tension between mother and son. Remember John chapter 2? Verses 1 through 5, Jesus' first miracle. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan, Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And I just imagine her like walking off. I mean, well played, Mary. Well, well played. Like, that's good. Like, not even a debate. So, family tension, right? Priorities. Jesus was not immune. And so, you see why Jesus didn't have teenagers. Like, this is why. So, family was a huge priority and value in Jesus' day. All the talk about Father Abraham. And the family lineage. Like, it's huge. Even to this day, Jews in Israel lay claim to their land based on the origin of their family dating back to Abraham. That's their claim. So hopefully this background helps us to see how shocking Jesus' answer to his family was. Who are my mother and my brothers? A relationship closer than family prioritized over family. John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
People who think they're closest to God, closest to Jesus, are actually the furthest. Because where are the scribes and the Pharisees? Where is his family? They are on the outside. And where are the sinners? Where are the tax collectors, the fishermen, the sick, paralyzed, leopard, spiritually oppressed? They're right there with Jesus. They're on the inside. Question for us. Are we where God is at? Are we on the inside or are we on the outside? We are religious community. So I fear for that. Are we with the people who Jesus would be with? Or are we outside of that? Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now back to Mark 3, verses 34 and 35. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So for those of us who prioritize family as the utmost Family is not the priority. The will of God is. Sometimes the will of God within the family is not the priority. Where the family has become an idol. And rather than leading the family to doing the will of God, we're leading it into idolatry. I am not saying that family is not important. I'm not saying that it is to be esteemed, it is to be prioritized, but it is not the priority. You know, when I ask people to pray about God's will, it's really fascinating to me that soon after I ask of such a thing, I hear them say, I'll talk to my wife about that, or I'll talk to my husband about that. I need to talk to my family about that. Don't get me wrong. Please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I mean, their input is really important. But isn't the priority to hear from God and what his will is for you before you talk to anyone else about it? Your family can affirm what you've heard or challenge you on what you've heard so that you can go back to seeking God's will, but they're not God. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. See, obedience to the will of God is the real indicator of who is in the family of God. It is not the ancestral lineage. It's not the physical bloodlines. It's doing the will of God is what makes you the child of God. And we can't earn righteousness before God, right? But doing the will of God is evidence we are children of God. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We'll close with that verse. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the people of this church, and we ask God that you would open our eyes as to why we do justice, we love mercy, and we walk humbly before you. Lord, I ask that you would reveal to us your will and that we would be obedient to follow it. I ask God that you would show anyone here who is in need of repentance 
whether that's of family idolatry, of busy being on the outside as a religious observer, doing all the spiritual disciplines and things in religious nature, but not being on the inside where you are, eating with sinners and tax collectors, reconcile, restoring relationships between you and God and within the community. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see a bigger vision of what you desire of us and how you want us to live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.